Sequence is loading. Why are you so worried about this, Shirley? You are young. Young people do all sorts of things. And now you wear clothes to the office every single day. Denny Craig. All right, everybody. Walk and walk. It would behoove you to be more circumspect. Get up! From Forest Rain Studios, the home of boston-legal.org, you're connected to Boston Illegal Radio right here in our home and in your home. Uh, this is the second half of a two-part podcast on the 18th episode of season two, Shock and Awe. Now, it's okay if you've landed on this first because it's all good, but definitely go back and listen to part one. In part one, we deconstruct the Denny Crane American homeowner storyline, but our special guest host for that part one is Daniel Roebuck. And Daniel did play Russell Blainley. He's the American homeowner from that episode. So a fascinating conversation with him, talking about filming those scenes, commentary on the storyline, and a lot of asides that you just don't want to miss, behind-the-scenes stories with Shatner and Renee and everybody on that set. And uh, he's done quite a lot, so tune into that. For part two, I'm lucky enough to be joined by another wonderful guest co-host. Those of you that have visited the Boston-Legal.org forums know her as Sue B., Welcome very much to the show, Sue Buetti. Yeah, hi, Dana. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Sue is calling in from Vermont, where she um, huddles to keep warm. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> We've actually had a pretty mild winter here this year, believe it or not. Oh, good. No snow still on the ground? Um, no, not very much, no. Okay. Well, n- tell me, just a, everybody might want to know a little bit, you have definitely jumped feet first into the whole Boston legal six degrees thing. Took it right out of my, right out of my hands. I used to be like all over it, but, uh, but wow, you've done, you've gone way beyond what I've done and it just had enhanced every episode so much. Anybody that has not seen it, go to the forum, look up under each episode thread and you'll find detailed information about each, uh, guest star and also sometimes now pictures of them as well. And you can go to the episode page on the website and that'll link you to all Sue's research. But tell me, what drew you into Boston Legal? When did you start watching? Um, I actually only started watching this season. It's kind of funny. I am a fan of award shows, and I watched the Emmys. And I guess I just kind of thought, how can this guy, James Spader, keep winning Emmys ahead of people like James Gandolfini and Ian McShane, who I watch their shows on HBO. And um, So I watched it once, and I was hooked. Oh, wow. Well, you have some catching up to do on season one. I know you have your DVD on order, right? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Uh, Sue's going to be here to talk about the remaining storylines. We're first going to actually touch on a little bit that uh, Daniel Roebuck and I talked about, his storyline about the American homeowner, because there's some important guest stars that Sue does want to talk about. Then we'll jump into the partner nudity storyline, where Alan helps negotiate for Shirley on some nude photographs. We'll get into Narcotics Anonymous, that would be the Paul, Rachel, and Brad, I'm a drug addict, Chase storyline, and conclude, as usual, with The Balcony. Also, as a rundown later after that, we're going to give you a preview of the next episode, Stick It, and then Deb will join us, Deb from Montreal, she'll be on the phone to talk about 
the parallel universe. Every week we look at Trek in the courtroom. She's got some interesting themes that are similar to shock and awe, the case of um, vigilantes. There's been narcotics addiction in Star Trek. Of course, the alumni that have been in both Star Trek and Boston Legal. And uh, Death by High Voltage actually even enters into it. Again, the American homeowner storyline. And then, Sue, you're going to help me with the calendar and the Boston News of the Week and the ratings. Yep. Sue, you are the one person, maybe of two people I know, that really understand ratings. That's because you're an engineer. <laughs> I Actually, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I know the, you know the viewers makes more number to me. I know the rating numbers are really more important, and especially the 18 to 49, but I... I guess I could figure out how they calculate them, but to me, it just the number of viewers makes more sense. Yeah, I do like the 11.4 million, 12 million, 9 million, and you do a wonderful chart. You can, everybody can get to that from the front page of the uh, boston-legal.org site or go right into the forum, and, and you graph out the whole season, right? Yeah. That's great. Uh, let's start now with a soundbite from, um, we're going to rehash a little bit of American Homeowner and because some of the guest stars are, you know, we really like them. And this first soundbite, and then we can talk a little bit about them, features Curry Graham. And who does he play, Sue? He plays ADA Frank Ginsburg. You got it. For answering any questions, I want to thank my client, Miguel Dominguez, for bravely agreeing to be here today. Mr. Dominguez suffers from severe paralysis and a host of other debilitating symptoms as a result of his electrocution. Nevertheless, he is here today to stand up for all of us, to help in the fight to make our country a safer place, a place where citizens do not take the law into their own hands. Mr. Dominguez is an inspiration to his community. He is a hero. Thank you. That bastard stole my story. Well, talk to us a little bit about Curry. He's been around a long time. Would you call him a character actor or just an actor? I don't know how you really define character no, no, actor. No. I mean, you see that all, all the time, and I think it's usually for ca- actors that have been around for a long time and haven't really ever established themselves in one particular role. So mm. perhaps he could consider himself uh, consider him a character actor. Mm. Um, this is his third appearance of the season. He'd been on Legal Deficit and Helping Hands, and you know, Frank Ginsburg just can't seem to win against. We can only hope that he, he will eventually make his bid for the DA position, right? Yeah. Well, he's got all the gestures and uh, <laughs> the gestures. patterns down, right? What gestures are you referring to? <laughs> oh, where he kind of thrusts his hand out with a fist and a thumb up. Harking mm-hmm. back a little bit to, yes, President Bill. Right. <laughs> well, now he has, uh, tell us a little bit about his pedigree, because you actually said that he, you got turned on to him a bit from NYPD Blue. Yeah, I, I had watched NYPD Blue sort of off and on over the years, and then last season I happened to tune into the first episode because my parents were visiting me and they watch it, and uh, he was a new character last year, the final year of the show, and played Lieutenant Bale, and he really butt heads with the, the main character of the show, Andy Sipowitz, played by Dennis France, and uh, really kind of added a lot. It was good. He was a very straight arrow lieutenant who was trying to set the rules and so on. It was, it was a, a great storyline and really added a lot to the show last year. I very rarely, before Boston Legal at least, be interested enough to like look up a character, you know, an actor's name and so on. But him, I, I, I got to know, so I've been sort of paying attention. And he, he must be well-liked, I guess, because he is not having a hard time finding roles this year, as because he's, you've mentioned before, you know, he's been on House and Desperate Housewives and over 
Boston Legal. That's right. He plays the um, advertising agency owner, right, in Desperate Housewives. Mm-hmm. Felicity Huffman's character works for him. You had actually found this. He's Canadian. <laughs> you yep. know, there's there tends to be some influential Canadians on the Boston Legal set. Would you say? <laughs> Did you just mention he was in the practice? I know you said that. Yeah, he, he was in the final season of the practice. Played an attorney for Crane Pool and Schmidt. In fact. Now Curry's not the only colorful character. It's, Boston Legal's full of colorful characters that were brought in for the episode. Next we have Candy Springtime, who was in the American Homeowner storyline. She uh, felt it was necessary to brand the trial experience. Actually, not the trial experience, because they never went to trial, but definitely bring it to the media, which was really the underlying message of that, maybe of the whole episode, is how we're manipulated by what we watch in the news. What's truth? I really like that the sort of the big issue story of this week was, was Denny, because it, it made it a little more, a little lighter than sometimes when you have Alan or Shirley covering the big issue. Yes, yes. And we'll visit this in the balcony scene, but he says, you know, I may not be the Denny Crane I used to be, but you know what? I may be better. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Well, without further ado, Candy. Denny. Oh, uh, Denise Bauer. Candy Springtime, public relations. Hello. Hi. She's with uh, Sherling Thompson, the same uh, public relations firm the government uses, so you know she's good. Denise, we're rolling out a new campaign to take back the story on Mr. Blaney. Take back the story? Denny tells me that you haven't branded him yet. So I took the initiative and created a brand. Russell Blaney, American homeowner. American homeowner. Simple. It's to the point. Uh, Cozy. Say it for me, Denny. Press conference voice. Russell Blaney, American homeowner. Uh, Wait a minute. American homeowner. Russell Blaney. See, it works both ways. Versatile. Not Russell Blaney eats some broiled, baked, or fried. But Rodney King was beaten. Okay, now this is just a mock-up. Obviously, we will replace Jimmy Stewart with Mr. Blaney. But the banner can and should be behind you every press conference, Denny. Notice I used the same font as Mission Accomplished. Americans are comfortable with that font. Now, we will send B-roll of Mr. Blaney to the press, working in his garage, using his table saw, working with his power tools, fixing things around the house. And as far as the talking points, keep it simple, Denny. Speak of the opposition as the drug-crazed intruder. The incident as the harrowing home invasion. Now, I know you're tight with Larry King, but we are negotiating with Nightline, Hardball, and The Daily Show. That is where most Americans get their news. <laughs> yeah. And I do remember, speaking of what Candy's talking about, is, you know, everything has a logo and a brand and the theme music. And I remember that. Well, with, I guess, mostly with this war over in Iraq, you yeah. know, it's right right away. We had the, the logos and the brands on the big news networks. Well, yeah. And the cable news, they cable all news. have their little different theme songs for each big story. And- <laughs> well, talk to me about Candy. She was played by Robin Riker. Yeah, Robin Riker has been acting on television since the 70s. Um, but I wasn't really familiar with, with her work. Uh, she has a website, RobinRiker.com, which has some clips that I looked at from her, some of her TV roles. She's had guest appearances on Cold Case and Joan of Arcadia, and um, maybe this Boston Legal appearance will show up on her website. I don't know. But, you mentioned uh, she was nominated for Best Actress for... Right. I, I was uh, hmm. from the L.A. Stage Alliance. She does stage work, and she had a Best Actress nomination for her performance in... And I don't speak French, so I'm going to just say dangerous liaisons. She was great as Candy Springtime. She was able to sit in the courtroom and give a very satisfied smile. (laughs) (laughs) Because all the jurists, you know, they 
they had been influenced by her work. Yeah, they, they, they bought the story. I'm pretty sure I've run into candies in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like that. Well, finally, we just mentioned the jurors. And you had a field day looking up information on each person. Juror number one, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just quick run through this 30-second uh, where everybody got a line, which means, I guess, didn't they get, don't they get paid more when they actually have a speaking part? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even if they just say American homeowner. Yeah, their name gets to be in the credits. Ah, oh, that's good. Here you go. Can you tell us... What opinions you formed? I think people should be allowed to defend their homes. Like Mr. Crane said, if the guy didn't want to get hurt, he shouldn't have been robbing anyone. Commonwealth challenges juror number seven for cause. No objection, Your Honor. Juror number seven, you are excused. I've worked hard to become an American homeowner. If the guy tried to break into my place... I'd do the same thing. I want to kill the son of a bitch. It's my right as an American homeowner. I may live in an apartment, but I still consider myself an American homeowner. American homeowner. American homeowner. American homeowner. American homeowner. God bless America. (laughs) All right, lay it on me. Yeah, I won't go through all of them because I think there's eight or nine of them. uh, But I'll just talk about a few. They... (laughs) Pretty much all have other jobs that they do besides guest work, but uh, you know, obviously a little feather in their cap to, to appear on a David Kelly show, even briefly. Carol Herman was the first woman uh, heard there. She's the, the elderly woman in the in the press release, um, and she's been on only a few t- film and TV uh, shows. But uh, her her main job, her main claim to fame, is as a as a musician, and she specializes in early instruments or historical instruments, I guess you might call them, the Baroque cello and the viola da gamba. Hmm, very cool. <laughs> so that's a, and most of the stuff I looked up on her was with regard to that uh, part of her, her career. And then there's Suzanne Wang, who also has another big job. She is the host of a show on HGTV, Home and Garden TV, called House Hunters. Apparently, that's that network's most popular show. So, she, and she's done a lot of sort of unscripted show hosting, um, and and also guest work like this. And then uh, finally, I just did want to mention Carolyn Lawrence. You talked to Daniel about. Oh, Daniel's in love with Carolyn yeah. Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn Lawrence just had a very tiny, a tiny shot in the sort of what I call the, the uh, Brady Bunch shot of all the jurors, or maybe you might call it the Hollywood Square shot with Denny in the in the middle square. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I guess her, she is a, a voice talent for cartoons, and her main role right now is as the voice of Sandy Cheeks on SpongeBob SquarePants. Which I've never seen, but you, you're telling now me you know, she's I a, have children, so yes, squirrel. I have seen SpongeBob SquarePants. Okay. Well, thank you. That actually kind of brings us to a nice conclusion. We, we wanted to fill in the gaps there from the first part of this podcast with Daniel. Let's move on to what I like to call Narcotics Anonymous. This was when I first saw this script about a few months ago. All I, you know, I saw, hi, I'm Brad. I'm a drug addict. <laughs> my mouth, just my jaw dropped. So I am so happy to, to have some of these sound bites. But let's actually, before I play the first clip, anybody who has not seen the past episodes, please, you need to, because Paul Lewis's storyline, I mean, Emmy moment, he's really good in it. And this is him reconnecting with his daughter, Rachel an adult who has actually a young child that Paul hadn't actually, uh, actually ever met his grandchild until then. Um, she's had a history of drug abuse. Paul's a little trepidatious about accepting that she's clean and sober now, but you know, he's finally come around to doing that, but he's getting little clues and hints and we aren't going to play a soundbite from it, but he had a, a breakfast with them at a coffee shop 
And some of her behavior was a little erratic and strange, so much so that it really harked back to what he had lived through with her, topped off by the fact that she asked for $40 because she had lost her ATM card or something. And I guess in street drug vernacular, that means I'm going to go score because they live their life, as Paul will tell you in a minute, in $40 increments. So let's listen to that first sound bite. By your look, it's not good. I believe Rachel's using again. She's back on crystal meth. What proof do you have? We were supposed to meet at eight coffee shop near her apartment. She showed up 20 minutes late with Fiona in tow. She was harried, disorganized. She couldn't find her keys. Paul, you've just described every single working mother in America. Then she asked to borrow $40. Crystal meth users live their lives in $40 increments, cash. Paul, this is a very serious accusation, and you need to be absolutely certain before you make it. I know. If I'm right and I do nothing, Fiona could be in danger. If I act and I'm wrong, Rachel will never speak to me again. She'll cut me out forever. What do I do? You've lived through a lot with Rachel, and this relationship you're developing with her now is very new. You might want to ask yourself if your history with Rachel's drug use is causing you to overreact. Just think about it. I can re- uh, I'm not a single mother or working mother, uh, but uh, I can see Shirley's point that the behavior that he's seeing doesn't seem all that unusual to somebody who doesn't know the person involved. And obviously, Paul knows her and knows the sign. And he's in a a horrible dilemma for a parent because, wow, I mean, how do you make sure without lending suspicion? Well, he he hits upon a plan. He doesn't have to actually try and find out. He can send in his new favorite partner, Brad. (laughs) I need a favor, a very important, very personal favor. Of course. After an extended absence, I have recently reconnected with my daughter, Rachel, and I've learned that I have a beautiful granddaughter named Fiona. Congratulations, Paul. My daughter is a drug addict, or at least she was. She says she's clean now, but I have my suspicions. If she is using again, then my granddaughter could be in danger. My specialty is in family law, but what I know... No, no, you misunderstand. I don't want your legal advice. I want you to find out if my daughter is using drugs again. Brad, if this year has taught me anything, it's that you will get the job done by any means necessary. I would never ask this of you unless it was essential. Absolutely. I'll do what I can. Awfully nice of him, but what is happening, man? Brad is the guy you turn to to get the job done by any means possible. I mean, you saw at the beginning of this season when, or was it last season? Anyway, when Paul would come to shore and say, you know, you're the guy that's going to do the dirty work. Actually, I think that was season one. Actually, I think Shore pretty much lost all respect for Paul for um, being the one to have to go and negotiate, you know, under the table or something. But... (laughs) Brad does it in a, I mean, he has good heart. It doesn't always come out quite somehow. I felt they, he really, 
Paul really put Brad on the spot. He really didn't have a choice but to say okay, I thought, to, you know, senior partner of the firm. Right. And, and uh, I think he was sort of begrudging about the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, especially off the heels of having his tie put on fire by Bev. <laughs> right. All right. Before we play the next scene, which is actually reintroduces uh, Rachel, played by Jane Brooke, uh, with Brad trying to get information out of her. Why don't you talk a little bit about Jane Brooke? She's been on now, is it a couple episodes or one? Yeah, this is her second appearance. Second. And okay. of course, it's going to be on the next episode as well. You've mentioned on the previous podcast that she was on Chicago Hope, uh, another David E. Kelly show. And a uh, thing I think I had just found out when I was researching her again for this episode is that she did receive a Screen Actors Guild Award in 1999 for her work in that, uh, along with the rest of the cast. They all won a the ensemble. drama ensemble. Oh. She's been honored. She got a SAG award. That same year, she, uh, in 1999, she also did some audio book work. And, uh, I think she's been in quite a few other shows recently since, um, since being on Chicago Hope. She's been on Everwood and Jack and Bobby. And I, she, I think she was a regular on a show called John Doe, which I never watched. Oh, I saw that one because I, I think it took place in Seattle or, you know, was supposed oh, yeah. to. Of course, I have an affinity there. Okay. And she was on Sports Night. Oh, okay. Never saw that one. But I do think she has killer dimples. Yeah, so I, I love her. She's a great actor. Jane matches really well with Mark. I mean, they need to be a couple, <laughs> I think. Well, I mean, yeah, no, I, I should say Rachel and Brad. Rachel and Brad, yeah. But I don't know how he'd get past the whole lying yeah, <laughs> for no. her father part. I think he's just done it in. and Yeah. Know, yeah. I do see that in the future script where he's kind of like inquiring after her through Paul, and Paul gives him like the shut down look. Yeah, know? I don't think yeah, that's going to happen. All right, here they are as he walks in, meets her for the first time. Brad meets her in her place of business. Uh, excuse me. I'm looking for some books on addiction and recovery. Uh, yeah, they're in the self-help section right over there. Thanks. Is there, you know, one book that's better than the others? This way. This one has some good advice on the early stages when you're detoxing and all that wonderful stuff. And uh, this one is really good for that time right after you stopped when you're trying to figure out how to put your life back together. Well, you know a lot about this. Well, clean five years, three months, and seven days. It's hard, but when you're ready, you can get there. Thanks. Sure. Uh, What time do you get off work? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not coming on to you. I was just hoping that we could talk some more. I sort of run out of people to talk to. I get off at 7. Thanks. Sure. I'm Rachel. I'm Brad. Nice to meet you. Oh, man, that scene, it just hit me right now, listening to it for like the fourth time. Uh, that is so reminiscent of Mark Valley's portrayal of a character in Once and Again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was on a few years ago, and he was Will Gluck meeting up with uh, actually a woman that runs a bookstore and huh. yeah and he was a carpenter and worked in that bookstore and then the, then there was that sort of but this one was more straightforward and he was actually trying to connect with her and excellent excellent scene and then it worked well with i mean this one was so similar i mean i i could hear the same hesitation in his voice and everything <laughs> great we all think that she's now clean don't we right yeah right down it's to the day the hour. Signs, right yeah so I'm not saying that she is or isn't. It's just at this point, you know, Brad's convinced. She's mm-hmm. 
seems really legit about that. And so they, they meet up to go to get a, a bite to eat or a cup of coffee. And, um, she leads him into <laughs> something that's not a coffee shop. <laughs> Are you kidding? Are you kidding about wanting to get straight? No. Thank you, Patrick. Keep coming back, buddy. Um, uh, are there any other new members here today? Brad, would you like to share? I, uh, no, I'm new. It'll make you feel better. Right. Uh, hi. Uh, Take your name. I'm Brad. I'm a drug addict. I'm not used to talking in public. Well, actually, I am just not talking about myself. Wow, you're just going to let me keep going. Okay. I was in the Marine Corps during the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm. February 24th, 1991, I was lieutenant in the 2nd Reconnaissance Battalion of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force. And under enemy mortar, artillery, and small arms fire, we breached minefields, trenches, barbed wire, and disabled six enemy divisions. By the morning of the 28th, 100 hours after the ground operations had begun, our coalition forces had destroyed 42 enemy divisions. That's the bulk of the Iraqi army in the Kuwaiti Theater of Operations. So then I started using drugs. <laughs> That's a, again, season one, you probably missed the first few episodes is the big thing was, you know, one of Brad's characteristics is he talks a mile a minute. You know, mm-hmm. do you do tongue push ups? I think Ellen said. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think this is the first time we've sort of harked back to that little trait, although it wasn't quite as fast, but it was definitely machine gunned out of his mouth. <laughs> uh, a lot of that's autobiographical. Well, I think a lot of it's autobiographical being a sort of a Mark Valley supporter you know he, we already know already because it's been in past episode that he mark graduated from west point huh so did brad mm-hmm. and uh and well we he, think yeah well no it was well denny stated well it. denny said it but if he was in the marines it wouldn't really make yeah. it, the army i think it's more non-denominational isn't it oh, really i think I it's just a military academy annapolis okay. is the navy and the, the navy Corps. they would go into they make officers for the navy or the marines okay you know it's in your neck of the woods i I trust you on that one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in real life, he was a lieutenant in the Army. He was in the Army, so that's why he went to West Point in real life. And uh, But I think he worked in the transportation unit, as I recall, and I don't really remember that all that much. But anyway, similarities there. Mm-hmm. He was, <laughs> visually, you can't see it, but, you know, he was definitely having that look when they were sitting in the circle and the guy was, Tim, was looking around who to call on next. and mm-hmm. Brad was doing that stare hard at the floor, don't call on me, don't call on me, don't call on me. <laughs> he did not want to talk. You know, but he felt the eyeballs on him. And well, you know, it's hard up. to lie, so he just decided to tell the truth about everything, except the very last. And oh, very of course, good. nobody believed him. <laughs> <laughs> Speaks for the man's ethics. You want to talk a little bit about Tim? Sure. Tim was played by Wesley Thompson. Tell everybody who he was in this scene. Oh, Tim was the leader of the, I think it was Narcotics Anonymous uh, group, the meeting. And so he's the one who was calling on on Brad to talk. Um, and uh, Wesley Thompson has had a long career on stage film and TV. And he actually, his first film role was in a short film in 1978 called Teenage Father. And the film actually won the Academy Award for Best 
live action short that oh, year. Wow. He's been on some of the most popular TV shows as a guest star. Cheers, MASH, Seinfeld, Friends, uh, you know, you name it, he's, he's appeared on it. Isn't and, that great? I just love to have that yeah. kind of memory scrapbook in your head of all those great shows. Oh, right. You know, just about, imagine all the, the great people that he's worked with over the years and uh, did appear on Chicago Hope once, uh, which was his only previous David E. Kelly experience, and I suppose he probably worked with Jane Brooks, maybe. Well, as the rest of that storyline, uh, just glossing it over really fast, was that uh, Brad and Rachel talked a little bit more um, where she called him out on his lie. Well, I mean, she didn't know who he really was. She just <laughs> said that story didn't sound right. And then they, they opened up a little bit. You know, he started sharing, well, you know, I'm not very much of a sharer. And she said, well, I'm not either. And she started talking about her father, very much of an attorney. And, you know, he was he kept his emotions tightly <laughs> tucked away in his coat pocket next to his watch. And uh, she would he would ferret out information from her with this sort of like courtroom <laughs> demeanor. And so, you know, he learned a little bit about that. That wasn't what he was there for, but, you know, he's taking it all in. And in this next clip, he'll kind of try and offer his, I think, nicely, his advice, but right. it's not taken nicely. No. And you made contact with Rachel. I did. I told her I was a drug addict. And? She took me to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, told me that... If I wanted to get clean, that I needed to work the program. So she's no longer using? No. She's been clean for five years. She's calm, rational, straightforward. Very down to earth, as a matter of fact. Fine. Thank you, Brad. You know, Paul, for what it's worth, she really wants to have a relationship with you. And I with her. And you know what might help is if... You showed her a little faith. I mean, she might pick up on that. I beg your pardon. Well, she says that sometimes you can be very judgmental. Brad, while your efforts are fully appreciated, your advice to a father concerning his daughter is not. You have no idea the years I've spent dealing with my daughter's illness. So it would behoove you to be more circumspect. Sorry. That was over the line. Hey, Paul, the truth is you've got really a hell of a daughter. She's sweet. She's beautiful. Nothing rattles her. Even when she lost her ATM card, I would have panicked, but she was really cool. What are you talking about? Oh, Rachel's lost her ATM card, so I loaned her 40 bucks. The the clue, of course, that pretty much sets into motion this final sound bite of Paul confronting Rachel. But just for a moment, I want to say... I've got to work in behoove you to be more circumspect in a sentence somewhere. I love the way he says that. <laughs> I remember listening to David E. Kelly giving advice to a young college student on writing for television. He says, you know, write dialogue how you say it. Get your friends together and, you know, whatever you've written down, say it and then use that because most of us write. And we have two languages, the write, written and the dialogue. Yeah, I listened to that. I got the Paley uh, DVD yesterday, yes, oh, and I saw you. You saw me. Oh, yeah. I hate that. But that's good. You got your well, you. Well, you know, you, you were sitting in a good spot to be seen. Yeah, I figured, you know, I think because I walked in late or kind of because I was out in the press line area and then I walked in late and I think I sat down in the same place that now that I'm watching the DVD that David E. Kelly got up from because he was sitting on the front row there on the side mm-hmm. um, while they were showing the film. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we did. And yeah, I saw you in the background of somebody else asking questions. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, bright pink stands out. <laughs> you know, next week, uh, next podcast, I'll have to play a little soundbite from that. Okay. Yeah, that sounds... Why didn't I do that? Because we already have a two-hour show. Right. <laughs> that's yeah, why. It's 
this leads us to the the final soundbite in this storyline with Paul and Rachel. Um, interesting thing I'm going to say after this, but first we'll just play it. It's, I've tried to shorten it a little bit because there's no dialogue while he's mm-hmm. rummaging through her bathroom. Dad. I had a lunch meeting nearby. How very impromptu of you. And unusual. Yes. Well, people can change. Yes, they can. Come on in. Can I get you something to drink? No, no. I I thought I would take Fiona to the aquarium, if that's all right with you. Yeah, I I pick her up from daycare in 20 minutes. Mm. I'll go with you. Sure. May I use your bathroom? Through there. Fiona is not there. She's away at school. But I want to just point out that um, it's quite a bit different than in the original script or the early edition. Right, of the I remember. I remember seeing that. Yeah, I, I actually had it up on the website for a while. Maybe I'll stick it back up there. How it was originally written. I mean, this is. I don't know why they changed it. This is fine. We would have had another guest star to talk about. Cup three of them. Right. It was written where Fiona is there, and Paul has gone on in there to uh, pick her up to take her somewhere, ice cream maybe, you know. He uh, picks Fiona up and leaves, and then right away there's a knock at the door. Rachel gets up to open it, thinking, okay, what do you guys leave behind? And instead of being Paul and Fiona, by design, Paul um, had arranged for Maggie Calder to be there, Maggie Calder being from the Department of Social Services, and she's flanked by two police officers. And she says uh, to Rachel that there's been a report of child endangerment. Well, you know this has come from her dad, Paul. Mm -hmm. And she says, the officers here have a warrant to search your premises. And, you know, Rachel inquires about that. She says, well, it's an anonymous report of drug use in front of a minor. And Rachel gets really irate, of course. And she grabs her coat. I have to go. He has my daughter. Like, you know, he's stolen her daughter or something. Mm-hmm. Maggie called her, goes, um, Fiona's safe. So that pretty much secures the fact that, you know, it was a prearranged. Paul takes Fiona out. They come in. And officer number one, <laughs> no name, I've got something, and uh, they turn to him, and he is holding a small leather kit. Again, similar to what Paul found in the bathroom, I guess. Well, I liked it the way it, it ended up, because I really thought uh, the scene where Paul's rifling through everything in her bathroom, it just kind of made you realize he must have done this a million times before. Oh, he yeah. knew all of her hiding places, and he finally found it. Yeah, that's true. He did went right for the medicine cabinet behind the stereo, behind the boombox. The garbage can, the, yeah. the laundry basket. He, he looked everywhere. You know, he didn't look that surprised. I mean, he looked disappointed, mm-hmm. but when he found it, it was like he kind of knew that it was going to be there. In that storyline, they actually handcuff Rachel and take her away. Yeah. We didn't hear this, but we didn't hear Rachel be able to say anything about what, you know, an excuse. It was just immediately Paul saying. It, she did not deny anything. She didn't. I mean, you could tell that she... But to, in this deleted part, she says, I swear, I swear, it's a friend of mine. You know, no, they no. left it here last no. night. But, of course, what's a friend of hers 
doing drugs in her house right. anyway. So it's I'm still wondering if there's a, an excuse. Or, I mean, a, not an excuse, an actual reason. Well, we'll find out more next next episode. Yeah. Well, our next uh, storyline is Ellen and Shirley. <laughs> wow, this um this kind of fleshed out their interesting relationship, which I don't know. You know, is it flirtatious? Is it just deep friendship? Is what is it? I I don't know. I kind of hope it's just yeah. deep friendship. But. Although, did you read? Have you read some <laughs> comments on message boards? People are like, "Well, they want they something should... to happen there." I don't really. I don't want that. I don't want anything to happen between Denny and Ellen. I don't want yeah. anything to yeah, happen. Well, absolutely, sure. yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. Teasing is what television is all about. Never <laughs> give it to them. So let's uh, start it out by a first soundboard. And I know you have some cool information about um, the people in this storyline, but mm-hmm. this one kind of sets it up. She's talking to, well, actually, Alan arrives at work in the morning after having just come from Denny's house and walks in and Shirley's sitting in his office. Shirley, first thing in the morning, haven't even had my coffee. Normally I'd make a witty retort about caffeine and your aging reproductive system, but not today, Alan. I have a problem. Carl Hauser died this week. The photographer? I knew him years ago. We hadn't been in touch for some time, but... Well, he's dead. I'm sorry. I met Carl when I was a sophomore at Wellesley. I spent the summer in Manhattan, and we met in the West Village. He was this amazing fascinating man and he told me I was very pretty and I did some modeling for him please tell me this is going where I think it's going yeah it is Carl took some very tasteful black and white nudes of me I am so disappointed in you Shirley tasteful there's going to be an estate auction and I want you to find a way to block the sale of those photographs how many pictures are we talking about I think there were 15, maybe 20... That's not so many. ...rolls of film that he used. I am so glad I came in to work today. Down, boy, this is serious. (laughs) Carl promised me that he wouldn't show the photographs to anyone. However, I signed a standard release saying that he could show them to everyone. Why are you so worried about this, Shirley? You are young. Young people do all sorts of things. And now, you wear clothes to the office every single day. Shocking as it may seem to you, Alan, I like my privacy. Maybe I'll want to be a federal judge someday, and being a named partner at a prestigious law firm, well, it's not good for business. I'll give you my best effort. Of course, at some point, I will have to examine the evidence thoroughly. There are so many good Alan lines in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you have some interesting little background bits about that. Actually, I want to talk about Marguerite Hauser after I play the next soundbite. But right. I did want to talk about Wellesley yeah. College, though. It's a women's college near Boston, and uh, it's one of the seven sisters, which were sort of uh, the Ivy League for women back when uh, the Ivy League didn't admit women. And uh, so I think they sort of, the Ivy League school started admitting women in the 60s. Some of them, I don't know exactly when, but um, so in the 60s, Wellesley would have been quite a, you know, no-brainer type of college for a, uh, you know, aspiring young woman to go to. And in fact, I uh, I was looking it up on Wikipedia, and they had a list of famous alums, and uh, 
Shirley wouldn't have been classmates, but she would have been there at the same time as Hillary Rodham, later Clinton. So I think they would have been maybe a year or two apart, of course, if Shirley really existed. But <laughs> I, thought it was, I don't think she's ever mentioned being at college at the same time as Hillary, but I thought it was kind of funny. Actually, I wonder where Candace went to. I mean, I know she grew up in Hollywood, so right. she may not have gone east. But. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't look her up. But apparently, you know, she, she seems to be about the same age as her character, yeah. based on the information we got in this episode. So her talking about maybe one day she wants to you know, be a judge. Well, maybe she wants to be like first lady or president. Too. I mean, she already dated a secretary of what defense, I think. Right. <laughs> After Denny. Oh, and actually that brings up an interesting thing. She reveals that, and I don't actually, we don't have a soundbite for that, but let's the talk about it. Children. Yes. She talks about my grandchildren might see those pictures. So that, yeah, that is new news. Um, certainly she and Ivan didn't really talk about having had children. So, Maybe there's another husband that we don't know about. Another husband. Grandchildren, too. It's multiple. So it was a a long enough situation, marriage. It wasn't just a child out of wedlock when she was young. More to be revealed, just like uh, layers of... every episode. Yes. To fill in a little bit of the story before we play our next clip, Marguerite Hauser has these pictures, these photographs of Shirley, and she is actually going to put them on the block. She's donating half of her husband's pictures to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, but she's going to put half of them up for auction, and that includes hers. They try to have a little, you know, negotiation, and they say that we'll probably get closed in court, and you know, but it, there's an implication with the attorney that they'll find their way out onto the Internet. There's a little bit of underhanded reverse blackmail going on with the suggestions. And then Alan comes upon a really wonderful discovery, and that's the 26th Amendment now. not <laughs> Shirley goes wasn't trying to vote here, you know. He says, well, the 26th Amendment also meant that not only the right to vote for 18-year-olds, but it was ratified in 71, and I guess apparently at that time, in 66, when the photographs were taken, she was still, was it 19? She was 19. 19. So she wasn't considered an adult until she was 21 at, in that year, in 66, right. because it wasn't until 71, so she was a minor. I think there was a big push for that at that era because so many uh, kids who were over in Vietnam who were 18, 19 years old, and they weren't allowed to vote. And yet here they were fighting a war. So uh, this brings us to, actually, once that's been discovered, he he calls in the attorney and Marguerite Hauser to just Alan, no Shirley, to talk about this. Shirley says, I don't want to be there for the dirty stuff. Just don't hurt her. Because she has, she does feel bad that Shirley slept with, Mrs. Hauser's husband at the time. Well, they had the little scene together, just the two of them, where she apologizes. And, and it, it of, didn't work. <laughs> right. That's where she mentioned the grandchildren sort of appealed to her, you know, and, and Marguerite yeah. just said, I'm sorry. Yeah, see you in court. This is a rather long couple-minute scene. I, I think it's the equivalent of a closing argument that Alan so masterfully gives because he's it's very convoluted and, you know, there's a little sarcasm in there and it's just this wonderful. Oh, my gosh, I had to listen to this so many times to try and make sense of it. But I think I understand it after like four or five times. Well, here comes number six. (laughs) Mr. Shore, with all due respect, you are on our last nerve. You said you had an intriguing offer. Get to it. Delighted. First, how about we ask all the lawyers to leave the room? You're a lawyer. Okay. How about all the lawyers who aren't me? Here it is, then. Simply put, it's Shirley Schmidt. As much as I admire and respect her, 
If I don't resolve this case, I'm afraid she'll get nervous and fall back on old habits. She'll call in the old guard, one of the cronies in banking and finance, someone who smells like old pipe smoke and hair tonic, someone with a florid nose from too many old fashions at lunch down the street. And this fella, whoever he is, will have friends. Friends who work in banks, who probably shouldn't, who don't treat confidential information very confidentially. And then, Marguerite, the old crony, will discover how deeply in debt you are. And once he learns this, my replacement will make a few phone calls, write a few letters, and seek out your husband's most distant and forgotten relative. Perhaps a less fortunate cousin who always admired but could never afford one of your husband's beautiful artworks. And my replacement will reach out to him and commiserate and convince him to contest your husband's will. At which point your husband's estate will be tied up, well, it could be for years, decades, really. And if this replacement of mine turns out to be this fellow I'm thinking of, it could get really ugly. For such a vague man, you've been extraordinarily clear, Mr. Shore. Yes, and here's the thing. I just don't like the way these people operate around here. It's just not right. These photographs are yours to do with what you please. And you should get a fair market price. So, before I simply give up and call it a day, I'd like to ask you one question. And what is that? What is your price? Her eyes did light up at that moment. <laughs> but I don't know why, you know, they didn't hit upon that long ago with the, the whole just buy the photographs. Well, yeah, I had to, uh, I was really curious about why they didn't just offer to buy them right off the bat. I don't think that uh, Marguerite wanted to sell them to Shirley. Um, she wanted to, to cause her some anguish. So you and, think uh, uh, there's a, a side deal there that they do not fall into Shirley's hands? Well, there could be. There could be something like that. Um, Alan, I think, was would have happily gone down the path that he described. Um, he probably already knew about, you know, he'd already looked up and saw that she had these debts and may have even... Uh, been in contact or at least known about some distant cousin that he could approach. Um, but of course, then Shirley sort of tied his hands by saying, um, "Don't hurt her." Mm. So he, he was kind of he was kind of stuck. And uh, and then I think he also had this ulterior ulterior motive that he really wanted the pictures himself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how he uh, came up with the solution of just buying them. He knew that Marguerite was in debt, and so she had a price. Now talk to us a little bit about the wonderful actress that plays Marguerite and also the attorney Michael Eaves, actor, the guest star that played him. Yeah, Bonnie Bartlett played Marguerite Hauser and uh, she has been around since the 50s acting on TV and uh, she did take a long break in the 60s to raise a family um, with her husband who is another actor, William Daniels. And the two of them uh, were on TV together in the early 80s on the show St. Elsewhere and they, they actually played a married couple on the show, and they both won Emmys for their portrayals of Richard and Alvin Craig. Hmm. And uh, since then, she's she's been on uh, in numerous guest roles, including her previous work uh, with David Kelly on LA Law and two appearances on The Practice. Hmm. Did you did you ever watch Saint Elsewhere? I did for a while. Yeah, I was a Howie Mandel fan. At the time. Howie Mandel. I mean, there were so many great actors on that Bruce show. Bruce Greenwood. Uh, oh man, yeah. And, uh, you know, Denzel Washington was on that show. Yes, and, that's right. Uh, yeah, I'm getting confused with Chicago Hope. Oh, Chicago Hope, well, yeah. St. Elsewhere was actually sort of an even earlier precursor to some of the great dramas of today, I think. It had some 
Hallmark drama, mm-hmm. really good cast, and so on. Um, and also, I just wanted to mention that, of course, a future guest star, Ed Begley, was on that show. Yes, he's going to be in what episode coming up? Oh, is it Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? I think so. He's the yeah. erotica collector. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll be good at that. And also, I, I uncovered that Betty White starred on an episode of St. Elsewhere back oh. in the early 80s between her, Mary Tyler Moore, and Golden Girls Day. How about Michael Eves, the attorney? Uh, yeah, Mark Derwin played attorney Michael Eves, and this was his second appearance on the show this season as attorney Michael Eves. Um, he was previously in Men to Boys, and he was the attorney who uh, was defending an automaker against the civil suit that uh, Denise was contesting. Jose Garcia. And, uh, he ended up getting sort of outsmarted by Denise, who used poor old Sarah and Garrett to uh, research his tactics, and she turned them against him. So I, I actually was curious. I went back to that <laughs> that episode, and, and thanks to I'm a Mess's script, so where he mentioned in that episode that uh, he said, we do nothing but do defense work for car manufacturers. So I wondered if maybe he lost his job. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's right. He was a corporate attorney for that, and now it looks right. like he's... Just um, a small sort of estate case. So uh-huh. I don't know what happened, maybe unless you know, he's doing a favor for a friend or something, but it seemed a little, seemed a little odd. He but, lost um, his job because he lost that case. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, he ended up having to, to settle. Uh, but... Um, just back to Mark Derwin, he um, he actually got his start in the, in the late 80s on the daytime dramas. He started out in Days of Our Lives and had several soap roles. And uh, he must be friends with Bonnie Hunt <laughs> because he's been on both of her sitcoms, sort of. The Bonnie Hunt short-lived, show. Short-lived sitcoms. And uh, he's also most recently had a recurring role on CSI. Cool. Working actor. Mm-hmm. Well, let's finally um, conclude this storyline with the final sort of recap. I guess it's the Alan and Shirley version of the balcony scene because <laughs> it's a very sedate, quiet, very sweet, nice moment. What are you going to do with those? I haven't decided. You know the one where you're not quite sure what you're looking at. Then you take a step back and realize what it is. That one may be going in the powder room. Alan. Tell you what, I'll leave them to you when I die. As things stand, I'm quite sure I'll pass on before you. Show those pictures to anyone and I'll see to it myself. Surely I have no intention of sharing those with anyone. I'm keeping you all to myself, I give you my word. You're one of the few people for whom I know that to be true. Thank you. No, thank you. Nice. Yeah, definitely a lot of mutual respect there. Yeah, amazing that she sees him as the guy that's that sticks to his word, mm-hmm. and not uh, you know the ones that you view more ethical, like Paul and Brad. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we, the viewers who followed Alan's career, kind of kind of know that unless you're crossing him, that you can count on him. Yeah, I give you my word that I will embezzle you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we never got the real story there. Yeah, that's true. At Carruthers. He just said allegedly. <laughs> All right, finally, the balcony scene. Hey, for, you're a music person. I mean, you beat me to the punch every single time. You're three hours earlier than me when you watch it. But <laughs> yeah, that helped. This was one of the balcony scenes. First one I can remember in forever. You didn't have some kind of popular theme underlying in music on it. I don't think there was any music, you yep. know, any outside music besides the Danny Luck stuff yeah. in this episode, which is kind of kind of unusual. 
So maybe they run out of their music licensing fee budget. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it has been that way where some episodes there's like four or five songs and then others there's really nothing. You know, this is episode 18. This is now officially the first 18th episode That's true. that they've ever had because yeah. I ended on 17 last year. So they have run out of money. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Good grief, we have how many more? Nine more? Episodes, perhaps. We hope. We hope. I was so happy to see that Race Ipsa was announced. I was worried that it was going to end with Ivan the Incorrigible, so we're... we're, (laughs) Oh, man. So far, so good. Race Ipsa has... That was supposed to be the season finale last year, the name of it, anyway. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of um, worried that there's some kind of jinx there. (laughs) Anyway, we digress. Let's go back to the balcony scene um, and see how it was ended. I understand congratulations are in order. Never lost, never will. <laughs> I may not be the Denny Crane I once was, but until today I didn't realize that this Denny Crane might be even better. Opposing lawyers everywhere are quaking in their custom-fitted shoes. Sam right there. So who cares if she... Who cares? You're still upset about Bev. What I don't understand is... I was married to one of my wives for five years. Got over her in a day. Bev and I were married for three hours, and yet... And yet... Do you know that I even have memories of her that aren't sexual? I'm sure you do. I miss her. I miss her. Well, are the rumors true? You have naked photos of Shirley... What's a big deal? I've had naked photos of Shirley for years. Denny, she's asleep in all these. Here's one where she woke up. Have you ever seen a beautiful naked woman look that angry? Then he pulls out a stack of Polaroids from his pocket. He walks around with those, doesn't he? <laughs> but somehow I don't think Shirley would have let him keep that last one, though, once he became aware of it. I how maybe he ran. He ran? <laughs> <laughs> oh, did he? Well, excellent episode, all in all. I, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, me too. A lot of it is going to continue on. I love it when they have a thread going from episode to episode. Mm-hmm. And this Paul and Rachel story will continue, of course. Well, we have a preview of next week's episode, which by the time everyone's listening to this may have aired, <laughs> since I tend to wait a week between podcasts. But the next episode will be called Stick It, and it's going to be number 19 of the season. And here's a brief 30-second preview. Next on Boston Legal. This woman is under arrest for evasion of federal income taxes. I just got fed up. With what? With the way the federal government is running things. What's this all about? It's about civil disobedience, Danny. It's about anarchy. It's about the girl. I've decided to do an intervention. The loving, let's all hug kind, or the other one. What the hell is this? You're going into rehab, Rachel. Screw you. I have a really good feeling about this one. You slept with him. I did not. Denise? Maybe a little. You Use that. Uh, lots of exciting things happening in Stick It. Now, without further ado, guess what? We have Deb from Montreal joining us. She has compiled several Trek in the Courtroom references, a lot of similarities between the two. Deb, thanks so much for joining us here today. 
Good to be with you, Dana. Quite a few. I'm looking at the document you prepared, complete with pictures. And once again, I'll remind everybody, go to boston-legal.org, click on the Trek link, and you'll see all of Deb's work in all its glory. Pictures, text, information, and we're going to play some sound bites for you. We've got a couple of those that you rounded up. But there were similarities in shock and ow, right? Yes. Uh, I guess the first case that uh, Alan and Danny, well, Danny was trying was the vigilante case, mm-hmm. whereby a man who had been robbed several times decided to rig his window with electricity so that anybody uh, sneaking into the window would be electrocuted. And there are so many parallels just in that sentence alone. <laughs> right. Firstly, uh, the vigilante theme, you know, uh, is one is where the law fails, citizens, renegades and vigilantes take over because they feel it's the only way to protect themselves. And uh, there was a whole story arc dedicated to that. started off in TNG, was carried through to Voyager, Concerning renegades and vigilantes, they had actually organized and called themselves the Maquis, and they existed because a treaty between the Federation and the Cardassian wasn't always being honored, and homeowners were being raided by the Cardassians, and they felt the only way to protect themselves was to work outside the law. So the Maquis was like a loosely group of renegades, is that right? Yeah, they came from all walks of life. A lot of them were former Bajoran freedom fighters, Starfleet sympathizers and disenchanted individuals. And uh, they got a few ships together and they would actually fend off the Cardassians in firefights. You said this runs through multiple of the franchise, not just one of them. It was a whole story arc well, dedicated to it. In, okay. Yeah. But, but, uh, but the, the first Maquis character to show up was in TNG. Her name was... Uh, Ensign Rolaren. She eventually joined Starfleet, mm-hmm. or repatriated back to Starfleet, and she was played by Michelle Forbes. Mm-hmm. And then in the Voyager, Voyager episode, three of the main crew members, there were other ones that were secondary characters, but three of the main crew members, Lieutenant Belana Torres, played by Roxanne Dawson, uh, Commander Chakotay, the first officer, played by Robert Beltran, mm-hmm. and Lieutenant Thomas Eugene Paris, uh, played by Robert Duncan McNeil, they were all crew members of Voyager, kind of captured as Maquis officers before the Voyager ship was thrown into a distant galaxy where they couldn't get back home. Oh. So in order to uh, round out her crew, uh, Captain Janeway repatriated those uh, Maquis fighters into uh, her crew. They served her well, I see. And they served her well. Lieutenant Tom Paris originally showed up in The Next Generation as a academy student who put a uh, training mission at risk and three, three of his crew members died because of it. And he was thrown into prison by his own father, who was the admiral. Oh, okay. The best person to flaunt the laws of the Federation was Kirk himself. Ah. <laughs> and he was often referred to as a, a renegade and a terrorist by the opposing forces of the Klingons. And let's hear one of those sound bites that you sent me. Behold the quintessential devil in these matters, James T. Kirk, renegade and terrorist. Does that describe him pretty well? <laughs> renegade and terrorist. Behold. I think some people would say that Benny Craig is pretty much of a renegade still. Yes, it is. And actually send me another one. May I play it right now? Sure. You are alive for a single reason. The renegade James T. Kirk. Hand him over. 
So it's almost like instead of Denny Crane, it's renegade James T. Kirk. It's just like his name. (laughs) Yeah, and I think in the movie, we often see Kirk in in a couple times. He refers to his his home birthplace in Iowa, Riverside, Iowa. And in the movie Generations, we actually see him appear at that home as a homeowner, American homeowner. American homeowner. Now that rings a bell to this episode. And you have a picture of him actually in his kitchen preparing eggs for... Preparing eggs. Yeah. Who's that with him? That's actually Captain Picard in there in the Nexus. Okay. This episode, Shock and Owl, with the Renee storyline, Paul Lewiston is daughter Rachel, had something of a theme going with narcotics, and you found something similar. Again, a whole story arc uh, to end off uh, Deep Space Nine, which was the um, series that Rene Aubergeonoir starred in as Odo, uh, dealt with an entire race of warriors that were bred and born to fight, male only, and they were born addicted to, it's called the white, that's what it's his nickname was, KHSL White was the name of the drug, and it's very similar in its addictive qualities to, I guess, crystal meth. Mm, which was the drug of choice for Rachel. That's right. Another race, the Vorta, used the addicted, oh, Jemardar is how they were, they were called, these warrior races, to, to keep them subservient and to do their bidding. So since birth, since the birthing chamber, right, they were addicted, yeah. needing it to survive. Yeah. But similarly in today's world, you know, drugs are used to create terrorists. And a lot of them are doing what they're doing because they are absolutely addicted. Like you said, the suicide bombers. You said the in your suicide notes. bombers. Well, it makes people, them feel invincible, right? That's, it makes them feel invincible. Right. Otherwise, it makes them feel powerful and invincible. And, of course, they're so entirely addicted that, you know, they, they do the bidding of other people. Yeah. Blow and Rene Aubergenois, as um, Paul Lewiston, he, he, he makes a point of mentioning it to his daughter. You were probably addicted from the first time you took it, oh. which is, you know, the, which is the you know, horrible truth about that drug. And you have a picture here of... Um Rene as Odo, and he's talking to one of the uh, Jim Hadar. Is that Jim Hadar? Jim Hadar soldiers. That's right. There was another interesting fellow you draw, drew to narcotics and something that Shatner worked on. William Shatner penned a series of books called Tech Wars, and uh, Tech Wars was the designer drug that you know, takes place in the future. It's a, a mind-blowing virtual reality stimulant, and creates a whole new breed of ruthless criminals. Hmm. And that was a very successful book, turned into a television series and a movie. And he actually starred as one of the characters in it, not the actual hero, but as a mentor-type character. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of uh, you know similarities to it. So, you know, I think that narcotics is becoming, in the future... <laughs> we may not have smoking, but we may have uh, narcotics. And, you know, what? isn't that the theme of a lot of television and movies is sex, drugs? Maybe not yeah. so much rock and roll, but hip-hop. <laughs> I don't know. Education is the only way to keep people from falling into those traps. Well, we had a great set of people from the Star Trek alumni theme that we always bring every week. And, of course, one of them we spent a whole hour with in part one of this podcast. Why don't you um, go, you know, I think anybody who listened to part one probably doesn't need you to tell them, telling them who this was. But go ahead anyway. Daniel Roebuck uh, portrayed Russell Blaine 
me, otherwise known as the American homeowner, in the case against, uh, he was the renegade who, you know, electrocuted uh, the robber in his home. And he portrayed also in Star Trek, uh, Jaron, a Romulan member of Spock's underground movement in the TNG uh, episode Unification. Part one and two. He, he was on the tail end of part one, he said, and okay. and then in part two as well. Yeah, I didn't find a picture of him in part one, but I did definitely found the part two picture. I told him that we have you have found pictures of him side by side. So you've got basically the Romulan character, then you've got his own, you know, as himself, and then you have him as Blaney. Yep. And uh, <laughs> this is a nice little montage. <laughs> well, I thought it'd be interesting to, when they do portray aliens in Star Trek to to show the makeup, how they look in uh-huh. real life and how they look in the Boston Legal episode. He did say that um, when he was getting guest stars kind of go on the set together and he was in a an area with Leonard Nimoy, just the two of them, for a while waiting for the stars to arrive and it was quite an out-of-body experience in a way for him. It's just amazing for him. It would be for any... I think Leonard Nimoy is just one of those iconic uh, classic uh, characters that anybody would be in awe if you had a chance to, port, to, to be in the same episode as as uh, Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, any of those big-name Star Trek people. In many of Daniel Roebuck's scenes, he was also in the same room with another Star Trek alumni. Who was that? Fran Bennett, who portrayed Judge Diane Avent. And uh, she was the Fleet Admiral Shanti, uh, who was probably uh, Picard's boss in Redemption Part 2. So she played a very powerful woman in Star Trek. She plays a very powerful woman in Boston Legal. And she is Judge Avant is coming back in the in a future episode. I just looked at the script and the, it's escaping me. Oh, Ray Sipsa, I think, or the one before that. Anyway, she's back as the judge. So. I, I, I thought she was she was really good as the judge. Yeah. And she when she mentions you know you created the sandbox, you play in it. Play in it. <laughs> Now, that's not the end of the themes. You had one more that really fit. Yeah. It was a very graphic description uh, by the American Homer on what happens to somebody when they become electrocuted. And uh, one of the things in Starfleet that was banned was this particular weapon, which was also um, similarly, similar, causes a similar design, the demise of a person because it's a slow and painful death from the inside out. Lovely, lovely. And this weapon was banned by Federation, and there was only apparently five in existence. And uh, in a TNG episode, a character by the name of Fajo, played by Saul Brubinek, uh he had one of these Varon T disruptor pistols. And he used it on his assistant to demonstrate to Data, who he had wanted to add to his collection, uh, the actual... Um, operation of this, this this weapon which was you know a gruesome demise and actually and, you have a picture of it of mid disruption and it's yes i do and I, I i was i thought i was really lucky to get that one because um she her name was varia she was portrayed by jane daly and she was actually part of his collection as well and he decided that she was expendable and uh, so in order to demonstrate the brutality in, of this weapon, he, he shot her with it. He looks very um, blasé about it while mid-disruption. Mid That's right. So we see him discharging the weapon. We see the uh, um, effects, the special effects of uh, Varia as she is vaporized in not a very 
quick and clean way, but quite quite slowly and painfully. And it was very reminiscent of the graphic description that the American homeowner provided uh, to counsel. As humans, we, we tend to think that, you know, when somebody does have to be put to death, that we, we look for the most humane way of doing it. And, uh, you know, it's gone through from, you know, hanging and then beheading to, you know, electrocution until finally, you know, we've come to lethal injection. And just recently, you know, I think there's a state that has also said, well, even lethal injection isn't all that humane. Yeah, I think this this last um, death in California. California. Right, it was Tukey Smith, right? They said it took him quite a while to actually... You know, so, so as, as, you know, as we go forward as a, as the human race, death by, you know, either from a, a defensive point of view or even from a uh, prosecution point of view, uh, you know, people are always looking to the point, you know, like, why does it always have to be, you know, painful and excruciating? That's right. Well, on that so very- I thought that was a very deep and, you know, and, and it could not be ignored as a theme because it is definitely something that is prevalent in Star Trek. You know, because the Varon T disruptor is from the get-go one of the first weapons that's mentioned as you know being banned by the Federation for its play. And the, and the weapons that how can I say the the Starfleet people use the phaser it has a stun setting. <laughs> I could kill anybody with it if you don't have to. Yeah, but I'm sure that's not pleasant either. Well, okay. Uh, I think I think a couple of times it, it it sort of like numbs you, probably like a stun gun, I suppose. Yeah. It sort of gives you a, 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 a temporary paralysis. Right. People go down smiling. <laughs> All right. On that happy note, we will go ahead and, and draw to conclusion our parallel universe between Star Trek and Shock and Ow. And Ow was really descriptive of his last theme. Thank you so much, Deb, once again. You're welcome, Dana. It's always a pleasure. I love having you on my podcast. Next week, we will explore more. Sue, we have some news to share of the week. Um, actually, we have some calendar events and ratings and a surprise little soundbite from the Ellen Show. Why don't you start us off with how well Shock and Awe did back on March 7? Shock and Awe grabbed the top spot on viewers uh, with 11.4 million viewers and had a rating of 7.613, which was number five on the evening. And in the 18 to 49 demo, it had 3.4 and 9, which was tied for six. That's great. As long as it, I learned this from you, as long as it's over three in that demographic, we're feeling good, right? Yeah, and I think uh, we've only been under three twice this year. Once with the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, once with the Olympics. And once with one of those, uh, back in December, there was a little little bit of a lull. And, and how wonderful. I mean, I, it deserves repeating again. This was, it won its hour in, listen, in viewers. That's right. And that never happens with SVU. <laughs> well, it was a rerun, but still. Did beat the amazing race as well. That's good. And this is with you know sort of a weak lead-in. Sadly, is the was the premiere of Sons and Daughters, uh, which I think this this having two back-to-back thirty-minute episodes. I don't know if that's such a great idea. I think a lot of people watched the first one to try it out, and then didn't feel like watching the second one because it dropped. I think. Well, I don't know if you had the numbers. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree. It did drop the second hour, although I. Can't quite understand where they'd go in the, at nine thirty. You well, know, what I mean? there, uh, it was a, it was a debut for a CBS show at the nine o'clock hour. 
Right. And uh, that but, show, I think, did really quite well. It was huge, but would you watch the second half of President Palmer well, saving the know, tariff? Some yeah. people do, I guess. Yeah. I'm <laughs> not that type of person. but uh, yeah. So definitely check out Sue's chart, everyone, that right there on the front page of boston-legal.org, and you can kind of see the whole trend upline because – there's some weird journalists out there who kind of say a downtrend here. Down, yeah, fading, fading drama. Oh. I just don't understand how they can say that unless they're just being mean. They're just being mean. They're ill-informed and they think they make a splash. I don't know. But I also wanted to, to thank Stepdog because she's the one who per, uh, provides the numbers. She jumps on them right away. Yeah, she's the first one. She has an inside source. <laughs> I'm sure that the people over at David Kelly Productions have their, you know, they get it as soon as it's published. But mm-hmm. I don't know, man, they should really come to our site because you guys posted in the forum the second. I mean, I think both of you hit refresh on Zap to it or Media Week or, you know, all those places. Well, Wednesday, yeah, right around lunchtime, <laughs> my time when it, uh, when it comes in. Yeah, I don't know. ABC drags their feet, don't they, with their ratings release? Well, I don't know. And then they don't go and mention Boston Lincoln. Yeah, George Lopez has the best <laughs> refund showing. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of sounding like George and Rodney aren't going to come back next year, huh? I mean, that's the sort of impl- implied yeah. thing. Well, I do have for you a little soundbite. Actually, two of them. I just couldn't restrict myself to just one from the Ellen Show. Spader was on <laughs> Ellen talking so about <laughs> everything except Boston legal. <laughs> you know, as usual, it's, it's either eggs or taking baths or, you know, masturbating or <laughs> something. His weight. His weight, you know, this time was his weight. So, um, of course, that's our first one. So let's listen to him as he was on the Ellen DeGeneres show, March 6th. You can dance during breaks at work. Yes, I should dance during breaks at work. Instead, uh-huh. I sit and then sit some more. Oh, well, you can do that too. I realize my job, I've put on some weight recently. Has anybody else put on weight recently? Because yeah. <laughs> I've put on a little weight recently. Really? Yeah, and, I, and, and it's besides world events and learning my lines, I pretty much am thinking about my weight gain. Uh-huh. It's those three things? It's those three uh-huh. things. Uh-huh. Yeah. And... I realized that I, you know, I'm in an office job now. I used to work in films, which, you know, I'd go and do that for a bit. I'd do a film for three or four months, and then I'd go off and do something else. Now I've got an office job for, you know, ten and a half, eleven months out of the year. But even worse than an office job, because I'm actually just pretending to be on an office job, so I don't actually even have to walk to the Xerox machine. Uh-huh. The Xerox just comes to me. Uh-huh. Uh, so I put on about 25 pounds. Have you? I see. I don't. I don't see it. Well, you have to be in the bathtub with me, which. Oh. <laughs> All right. Again, he goes back to the bathtub. <laughs> we talked about that on Conan. Wow. We aren't going to play it, but I love his little um, deal on how he can fool his brain into the fact that he hasn't gained weight <laughs> by standing a certain way, and of course. The sweat so suit. His, I mean, his pants size and his belt size. It's said, and it's like you haven't gained a pound. It's great. <laughs> I'm not too sure about this second soundbite, which is the rather dubious idea of Ellen's production people deciding they want to like treat Spader like a trained seal or something and go through this silly game. But I guess it was no, amusing. He, he, he was a he was a good sport. He was a good sport, but I don't know. It just it kind of reminds me like when Tony Danza gets Shatner up there to play like Star Trek trivia. It's it's mm. a little. I mean, these are intelligent people, you know. I mean, the guests are. They, maybe not the talk show hosts. I don't know. Yeah, no, well, well, Vader and, and Ellen are used to be neighbors, right? They're sort right. of friends. 
Right there, friends. You're right. Just to set it up, this game is where she's naming laws that, you know, may or may not be true in the state of Massachusetts, and he has to guess whether they are or not. He actually asked if he could take those cards with those laws back to the set with him. I don't know if he's going <laughs> to shove it under David It was Kelly's pretty amazing, room. I thought. <laughs> Maybe we'll see a storyline about this. <laughs> gorilla's in the backseat. Uh, okay, here are the things. That I'm going to read you something, and you're going to tell me if it's a real Massachusetts law or not. Ready? <laughs> Number one, gorillas are not allowed in the backseat of any car in Massachusetts. That's not a real law. That is a real law. In order for a pickle to officially be considered a pickle in Massachusetts, it must bounce. That's not a real law. It is not a law in Massachusetts, but it is in, it is in Connecticut. Okay. Close. But it is not. You're right. At a Massachusetts wake, mourners may eat no more than three sandwiches. <laughs> That's not a real law. That is a law. <laughs> No one may bite off another person. They should just come get me right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And of course, anybody who has, <laughs> who hasn't been to the site, you know, where it, maybe they're getting this uh, podcast from iTunes or something, go to boston-legal.org, watch the full interview, 10 minutes or so, I guess. Enjoy it. So I understand uh, we have a few calendar events. You want to tell everybody what to look forward to in the coming weeks? Sure, March 22nd is a big day because it's William Shatner's birthday. And to celebrate, William Shatner will be in concert on Living in TV Land, on TV Land on that day. You know, I just want to interject. I think that if anybody goes to williamshatner.com, which is his official site, and I haven't been there lately, but I guess somebody told me from over there that the fan club, the Shatner fan club, were down and in the audience for this and um, followed him around, you know, while TV land was following him around. So there's, you know, I think we may get some glimpses of the, the fans, you know, <laughs> there for that. That'll be interesting because I know there are a lot of fans of Star Trek and William who mm-hmm. watch the show. April 4th is David E. Kelly's birthday. You know, he was heading up April 4th last year. He was getting ready to head up to Nemo Bay. They were filming oh, that's right. maybe a week yeah. after that or so, according to Georgia Murray. So. Right, and Georgia, yeah, Georgia's birthday, of course, is later in April. Yeah. And uh, April 11th, there's unfortunately going to be a preemption of the show for the Ten Commandments. We'll give and them that. Definitely go over to our forums spoiler section if you want to find out some little clues on what Recips is about. We try and get that in there way before they get it over at Spoiler Fix and all those places. So... This is the place to go when you, if you don't mind knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> Speaking of future episodes, and we just mentioned Ivan Incorrigible, episode 22, Meredith Patterson's coming back. She is the actress who played Missy, the Broadway show tune loving wife now of the Tom Selleck character, Ivan Tiggs. And she has agreed, not only just agreed, she, I mean, she, she enthusiastically agreed to co-host, guest co-host the podcast. So that will be very fun. So right after that episode airs, we'll be hearing from her, and she'll be talking all about the episode. She came and posted in our forum, didn't she? Yeah, she did. After her Live Big episode, people come and and look at the Live Big thread in the forum over at boston-legal.org, and you can see what she had to say. She left a couple messages. She said she was having a good time in there, wasn't she? Mm -hmm. She's a very approachable person. 
That brings us finally to the end of the extra long two-parter podcast. <laughs> so thank you so much for stepping in and, and taking care of the six degrees thing. It was fascinating. Oh, you're welcome. And I will continue to do, to do those in the forum. Oh, yeah. You deserve all the credit that I can possibly throw at you <laughs> for all your hard work. Well, I didn't mean to steal the... the that's a little task for you. Then. Oh, yeah, you can steal my tasks anytime. <laughs> I already seem to spend too much time on this. I'm so grateful that you're doing this. And thank you very you're much. You're welcome. Uh, remind everybody, of course, Boston Legal Tuesdays, you never can miss a week. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We, we really appreciate your time in devoting to listen to this. Don't forget to listen to part one with Daniel Roebuck. He was an amazing person. I feel like I'm friends with the man. <laughs> I uh, can't hear him. He said he was ready to fly up to Seattle to come see me because he heard my husband was out of town. <laughs> and of course, it's just good-natured flirting. Did you talk about Monsterama with him? Yes. So you're aware of Monsterama? Monsterama, yeah. And his, he was, he's Dr. Shocker, I guess. Yes. The name of the he's amazing. He's, he's been in over he's... 100 TV shows and films and The Fugitive and U.S. Marshals. And he was a regular on Matlock. And I was first aware of him in The River's Edge, which was like the seminal teen angsty kind of strange disturbing movie from the 80s he was the guy that killed his girlfriend and that everybody came and looked at for weeks and weeks and adults never knew it was very strange so enough of that um in the meantime sue remember live big my friend live big i'm keeping you all to myself i give you my word Hi, uh, I'm Brad. I'm a drug addict. Young punk, you must know computers. Set up a website, those blogs, and 